Hello and welcome. Where are they, Gabby? The Investor Lab! <laughs> You've made it. You've made it to the auditory and visual epicenter for passionate people just like you seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. Abundance. And today we're joining you live. Well, it's live for us. It's not going to be live for you. It's recorded. It's true. It's live for us and nobody else. <laughs> okay. We are alive. We're joining you alive. We're alive. We are alive. Yeah, we're joining you alive in Yamba, sunny Yamba. And today we're talking about the stayers. We're talking about um, the sixth core element in the Hunting Hotspot series, the stayers. This is a little different to what we kind of normally talk about, isn't it, Gabby? It definitely is. This is a bit more of a long sword. And we go into this. It's a really good analogy you use later on in this episode, but it's a, it's a, the more steady strategies that people like to use, the more long-term growth rather than a lot of other tactics that you hear at the moment is very like short served. like what can I do right now? What can I tactically do that's going to get me a benefit right now? Yep. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And look, the kind of area, the kind of stuff that we're talking about with the stayers, some of the, and they're different in different areas, you know, some of these are going to be attached to lifestyle drivers and some are going to be attached to urban renewal projects and some are going to be attached to infrastructure projects. So as with any of the hunting hotspot series, series, you don't want to look at any of these things in isolation. You want to look at how they relate to other elements in the hunting hotspot series. So typically we're looking for three to four. Now, if you can find a stayer that also has has matched with two or three other of the characteristics out of the hunting hotspot series you may very well have found an, a location that is primed for growth and if that's the case hey it might be perfect for your strategy but you've got to understand where this fits in with the portfolio and make sure that it's the right asset at the right place at the right time in your portfolio so that you don't get stuck um but I think it's actually been really good. I think it's really good to bring a different element to it and to kind of talk about some suburbs and some areas and some characteristics that we don't kind of normally talk about. So I think it's been a really, really valuable episode, don't you? Yeah, I think it's going to be really helpful for you if you are someone who's kind of has a bit more of a leaning towards a long-term growth strategy. Like if you've, if you've been thinking that that's how you want to invest, you want to be a little less active, you want to be quite passive and like, the way that you've learned and the way that you understand real estate is that you find a really great long-term location and that's where you buy and you just sit on it and hold and it's very low fuss, um, very passive in that sense. This is actually a really good episode because we kind of talk about the downsides of why that might not be the best thing for you. It could be a really great thing for you in this particular point in your portfolio, but for a lot of people it's not. So we kind of go into what are the downsides, um, what might get people stuck. Um, yeah, I just think it's going to be really helpful if you're thinking that way. 100%. I, I actually, again, I think like the most interesting thing about this is the thinking paradigms. It's mm -hmm. like how to think about these types of assets, how to think about where they fit in your portfolio, how to think about what to look for rather than like, hey, here's the latest here is the latest bit of data. Go by there. It's like, no, okay, cool. You can kind of think about where and how to find these and where they go in your portfolio and decide for yourself. I think that's the greatest gift that we can give you is the ability to think about this kind of stuff in the best way. So without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. But before we do that, make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. And if you're not on Apple Podcasts, just hit subscribe somewhere else. If there's no way to hit subscribe, <laughs> write subscribe on a bit of paper and just start smashing a bit of paper. Don't care. That's fine. And if you want to get in touch with us, if you want help to build your own property portfolio, if you want access to an almost 
a limitless supply of resources, tools, and experience to help you get to where you want to go from where you are now, then just head to theinvestorlab.com.au. There's contact forms, there's free resources, free tools, and of course, other episodes of the podcast to check out there. So make sure you do that. And without any further ado, let's get stuck into it, Gabby. We'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. You with Goose and Gabby. Hey Gabby. Hello, Goose. How are you? I am wonderful. How are you? I'm 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 awesome, right? I I if it, it there's a few things going on here though. Like there's <laughs> there's a lot, there is a lot going on right now. And anyone who's watching this is gonna be thinking, hang on a second, is Goose in a 90s uh film clip? So we've got we're oh, actually you look very 90s. I'm super 90s, 90s uh, music clip right now. I've got a completely white background, high-definition video. If, you, if you're not watching this on video, I recommend go to YouTube and check it out because <laughs> this is amazing. I've got a white microphone. Everything's different. We've actually got a completely new setup. And you're, I'm even. I'm not even sitting in the same room as you. It's We're in like, different rooms. It's so there's, far away. There's a lot. There's a, there's a lot going on. A lot of changes. A lot of different headphones. Different background. Different microphone. Different. Location. Different location. Yeah. So we're currently in Yamba, which is Yay! awesome. Yay! Which is fantastic. <laughs> so we are we we've taken the uh, we've taken the podcast on the road, and um and so then so we're testing out some new uh some new some new stuff some new formats. So it's um it's uh it's interesting. I'm at a standing desk. It's uh the whole world. My whole world view has shifted. How's the standing desk? And it, it's um standy. It's a bit more upright. There you go. There you go. Who'd have thought? Totally. So, no, I think um, life, life's good. Life's good. I'm even drinking – so much is different today. I'm well, even drinking tea bag coffee, right? I'm like – this that's is – so funny. Yeah. I, I've, gone from, I've gone from espressos in Bondi with, a, with our home studio <laughs> set up to like tea bag coffee in Yamba with a white microphone and all kinds of stuff. So I know. I've got to say. The, de- the development the- – you go. No, 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 no. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. I was going to say the development of our coffee habits compared to the very early episodes when we were talking about, oh, we've got our Ethiopian single origin this week. And now we're like, Rob Tim's coffee bags. Let's go. (laughs) Tea bag coffee. Um, Anyway, but that's cool. So we've taken a little trip up the coast. We're we're sussing out. If anyone asks, it's a work trip. We're obviously sussing out. Um, we're obviously sussing out new markets to invest in. Yamba, yes. hot tip: the new Byron Bay, love it. It's very good. But we're not here to talk about Yamba. We're not here to talk about coffee. We're not even here to talk about the fact that I look like I'm in a band from the '90s recording a film clip. <laughs> what are we here to talk, talk about today? We're going to continue with the Hunting Hotspots series. We are up to number six. Sweet. What's number mm-hmm. six? The stayers. Okay, which cool. I feel like is quite relevant considering kind of the towns that we're bopping around in at the moment. Yeah, I think I actually think it, I think it is as well. So we had to relate back to some of that as well. I think so. All right. So last last in the last one of this series, we covered uh, Boomtown syndrome. Right, mm-hmm. which is basically for those of you who didn't catch it, I recommend going back and checking it out. But essentially, you know, it's uh, it's buying in towns with a bit more volatility. There's much more upside. But there's also much more downside. Uh, all of that kind of stuff. Now, I guess the stayers is probably the antithesis to the boomtown syndrome. Do you think? Mm. It's almost an anti-hotspot. 
it's 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 interesting, isn't it? It's, it's it's very interesting because would you consider an area that provides consistent, stable uh, growth? Would you consider that to be a hotspot or not? It's a very interesting consideration. Mm. And if not, why not? Mm, you're asking the big questions. I am asking the big questions. I am asking the big questions. So I, I would absolutely say that depending on your investing strategy, depending on your risk profile, and depending on, well, you know, you as a human, I absolutely think that just because somewhere is um, stable and consistent and doesn't have some kind of like, wham, bam, oh, my God, you know, like there's a huge urban renewal project or there's, you know, massive infrastructure, if it's consistent and stable, I think that that has a very, um, uh, uh, you know, pragmatic place in probably most people's portfolio at a certain stage. Mm -hmm. And so I would suggest that it's, uh, it is equally as valuable as any of, any of the other components we've talked about. You know, like with Boomtown Syndrome, yes, you can make very large gains, but you've got to understand how to manage that timing in the market and, and be prepared to understand some of that risk. Whereas if you're in a different stage in your property portfolio, in just more consistency, you don't want any excitement. You just want, you know, day in, day out, year in, year out, you know, it'll just keep chugging along. I think that's where this fits in. And I would suggest because some areas do that better than others, and this isn't something that you would just carte blanche say, okay, well, you know, anywhere that's like this, just, you know, go and buy. I, I would suggest that there's still very specific suburbs that, that, uh, exhibit these characteristics. So I would still, I would definitely still say that this is 100% a hotspot. Um, that's my view, which was. Yeah, well, I think these are actually probably the locations where the majority of people feel the most comfortable investing. From like an advice perspective, I feel like a lot of professionals in the space would, you know, lean towards these kind of solid growth, steady kind of, you know, you've got the tortoise and the hare kind of analogy. These are the more the tortoise that just keep chugging along for the lower risk profile investors, I suppose. Well, I am going to disagree with you there. Not because, Ooh. yeah, I'm going to disagree with you there because I would suggest that um, most, uh, you know, property specialists who espouse their desire to help people invest in these places actually get it wrong. I, I would suggest that um, whilst there is definitely an appetite in a market, and we're typically, you know, we're, we're typically talking. Uh, let me let me kind of like put this in context. What what a lot of buyers agents or property investment companies or whatever the case may be will always talk about is you know to get stable, consistent growth. So the thing that they're pitching is the stayer, right? But they're, what they're saying is to get stable, consistent growth and to get all of these kind of things that you might want from a low risk pro profile perspective, you've got to be, I don't know, within eight kilometres of the CBD, for example. And so they kind of talk about this idea that that's where you find the stayers and that is incorrect. So I kind of agree with you that, yes, this is what a lot of people talk about wanting to do, and I absolutely think it is important. However, I would suggest that a lot of people who talk about doing this kind of thing don't get it right. They actually get it wrong because what we actually see typically with that kind of a strategy, with that, you know, like buy close to the CBD, that's where you're going to get consistent and stable growth over and over and over and over and over again. We typically actually tend to find that the prices are higher and actually the market's way more volatile. So volatility is totally uncharacteristic of what we would consider to be a stayer suburb. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. Like what's, what's an example of a good stayer suburb? 
Well, I think what we need to look, we need to look at how we define it first. I think the definition around what a stayer would be is probably going to, going to help enlighten the conversation a little bit. So when we, when we think about stayers, what we want to be thinking about is where exhibits consistent year on year growth, regardless of what's happening in, in, uh, you know, more macro market conditions, right? Now, this may sound like, you know, your more blue chip suburbs like your Turaks or your Bondi's or any of this kind of stuff, but the reality is those markets are actually quite volatile. So when, so when say, the Melbourne and Sydney market um, start to shudder and shake and when they catch a cold, those areas sneeze. And so what we actually want to look for is what areas have performed the most consistently regardless of whether there's been overarching market fluctuations in those areas. And that is typically indicated by consistent sales volume. So, for example, uh, a suburb like Sunbury is a really great example. That's had really consistent sales volume, quarter in, quarter out, regardless of what's happening in the rest of the Melbourne market. And that's had about 7% uh, year-on-year growth consistently because the sales volumes have stayed consistent. Another interesting one is um, Greneth in the Adelaide Hills. That has also had consistent sales volume, quarter in, quarter out, month in, month out. And it's that consistency that regardless of what's happening in the rest of the market, that's what's give, what gives the stayer its characteristics. Okay, so it's mostly a volume game. Well, it's not a volume game in the sense that it's like the more, the better. No. I can see you've got a quizzical look on your face. Do you want to dig into that? Okay, cool. So it's not a, it's not as it's not as it's not as simple as like okay, the more sales, the better. It's the more consistent sales, the better. Mm-hmm. And that's how you define like that's the staying power that we're after. Now, if you took a if you took a macro view and said okay, well, if we if we had a suburb that sold a thousand houses, let's just take a thousand houses uh, over a year period. Now, if you had a thousand houses distributed evenly, getting sold. You know, every you know, evenly spread across the whole year, and so you would have an average of, you know, uh, whatever that is, a hundred. We'll call it a hundred a month, or whatever the case may be. Consistently, that would be that would be a better indicator. Now, obviously, what we're looking at is more than a one year trend. We're looking at you know multiple year trends to define whether or not these are these are you know really stay suburbs. What would be more volatile is if you had a thousand sales in a year and you had them all in the first month and then none for the for the other eleven months. That would be volatile. And so what we're looking for here is not just pure numbers. It's not like did that suburb sell more or less than that suburb. It is did it sell more consistently. So you can have suburbs which have performed consistently on and had consistent levels of growth. You know, and we're typically talking six, seven, eight percent annual growth rates, right? So we're not talking sort of, we're not talking like stable at two percent growth or anything like that. We're talking about stable at yeah, really high growth rates. But what we're typically, you, you might find that with say fifty houses a quarter. You also might find that with a hundred houses a quarter being sold. And so there's kind of a variance in there. That it's not purely about the number of houses that are getting sold. It's about about the consistent demand in the marketplace. It's about the consistent turnover of stock. It's about the consistent desire for people to live there. And that's what and that's what allows that kind of process to happen. Now, the most interesting ones is when this ha- this continues to happen regardless of what else is happening in the market. So Frankston is a really good example as well in Melbourne, where you know Mel- other parts of Melbourne have been up and down and sideways and blah 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 blah, and they jump all over the place like a bit of a roller coaster. And Frankston has just performed, you know, ultimately very consistently, you know. And then you've got other places like you know Freshwater in New South Wales, 
which is another really great example. Now, you know, that's in the northern beaches of Sydney, and that's had, you know, I think it's got about 8.1% average annual growth rate, and and that just chugs away. That just chugs away regardless of what's happening in the rest of the, the, the kind of in the market. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. Yep. Awesome. All right. So the question then, then goes, why would anyone want to invest in these kind of areas, I guess, right? Mm. I mean, we- consistent 8% growth doesn't sound awful. Yeah, totally. <laughs> what? <laughs> totally. But you know what happens with consistent year-on-year growth? What? Prices go up as well, right? You know, that's just mm. that, that's just a factor of it. Now, the reality is, you know, freshwater in the northern beaches, hey, might be an awesome place to invest, uh, and you might get consistent uh, consistent growth year on year. Um, but can you afford it? And actually, does it fit your strategy? What are, like is that going to support cash flow? What function does that serve in your portfolio? Now, not all properties are purchased for cash flow. Okay, so you may have a point in your portfolio where you want to add these types of assets. You know, the thing is as well, you can you can kind of look at annualized growth in a bunch of different ways too because if you have one area which has a very strong year and then a less strong year and then another very strong year and then a less strong year, you can kind of look at that average over the four years and go, well, it did pretty well, right, across the, across the four years, but you're still ultimately going to have a lot of volatility and that's kind of what we want to avoid with these, with these kind of markets. So really I think that this strategy is most suited to people who – already have established cash flow and are looking for a growth vehicle to safely park their cash because it's going to get better returns than in the bank. It's going to get better returns ultimately than probably shares because, well, not probably, it'll ultimately get better than shares because you'll have better leverage and all of that kind of stuff. But it's not really going to work for someone who has a desire to, you know, if they're in the kind of earlier phases of their portfolio, where they're in the accumulation phase. Does that kind of make sense? Hmm. So what, what are some of the downsides, I suppose, Let's say someone has kind of consistently bought a handful of properties in these kind of locations. What do you think is going to, obviously there's a cash flow component that they're going to get stuck with. Do you think there's any other downsides to purely having those kind of assets? Um, that's good. That, the cash flow would be the biggest one. See, because here, here, here's the thing. Like the reality is, you know, let's let's grab a couple of, couple of suburbs, right? So let's say, you know, Freshwater in New South Wales, Sunbury in Victoria, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Hallett Cove or Granith in South Australia. The reality is if you're centralizing your strategy around this particular component of, you know, the stayers, what's, gonna, what's going to happen is that you're going to be compromising your ability to get cash flow. Now, depending on your situation, if you've got a high, if you're a very high income earner and you've got a high disposable income, that may be okay as long as you're happy to stay in your job. But the reality is, and we said, we've said this so many times before, and I guess it's the whole function of this podcast and everything, the reality is most people want to invest in property because they want to stop work, right? Mm-hmm. So in order to turn those assets into cash, you need to be able to liquidate that equity. So that what they serve is a very strong equity-building vehicle in a very stable way. Now, there are many ways you can you can create equity. You know, you can buy it on the way in. Um, you can get market market growth, which is what we're talking about here, or you can manufacture it. Now, buying it on the way in is really great. You know, because you're you're getting it for free at the start, waiting for the market to move. This is this is where this strategy fits, right? This is this, the three types of equity, and this suits Route One really well because you're going to get consistent growth. The the third type is manufacturing equity. Now, depending on how you want your equity, what you're planning on doing with it, that's going to dictate whether or not this is the right equity building strategy for you. Because if you already have a lot of cash flow 
and you just want to you want to build a, a a net worth base and you have the cash flow to be able to support your lifestyle support the continuation of your property portfolio all of that kind of stuff without needing to tie it up with these kind of assets or you can support these kind of assets which may actually be negatively geared um, or most likely actually probably will be negatively geared, um, then then that's totally fine too. But I would suggest that for most people, the thing that's going to, if they try and jump into this phase at the wrong point in their portfolio, or if they haven't f- uh, fully calculated, you know, the cost of debt and the implications on their servicing uh, and their borrowing capacity, I would suggest that this could actually be the thing that, that gets them unstuck or actually rephrase that, makes them stuck. Mm. Yeah, so I guess it's more of a... These locations are probably more suitable to someone who is intentionally looking for a negatively geared strategy, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's 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 the idea of intentionally looking for a negatively geared strategy. Um, there's also, you know, this could actually suit someone really well if they wanted to buy their own home, right? Here's where here's a here's a place where it could actually work really well. Where if you're going to buy your own home, if you're at that stage in your portfolio where that makes sense to do that, that's already going to be going to be non-income producing debt. Okay, so therefore, if you wanted to think about your home in from an investment perspective, and you were to buy in one of those locations, let's say Freshwater in the northern beaches of Sydney, that might be a great place to live. You might desire to live there, all of that kind of stuff, and you're likely to get good, consistent growth on your home, and that could be a really interesting way to add it into your portfolio whilst thinking about that growth. However, again, you know, if if you buy a property and it goes up by a million dollars over the next, you know, ten years. And uh, if you don't have the cash flow to support taking that equity out, you can't access that equity unless you sell it. So there, there's one of the biggest traps with this kind of strategy is, is you get the growth and everyone wants growth. And I agree, growth is insanely important. However, if you can't use it, it's a moot point. You know, it, you, it, you're not actually going to be able to tap into any of it. Hmm. I think one of the big, I think one of the biggest myths around this though is that it has to is that they have to be in a city. I think this is one of the biggest myths that needs to be dispelled around it because mm-hmm. a lot of people think that you know because you can look at and I kind of touched on this a moment ago with like the volatility of different markets going up and down. A lot of people look at places um, that are closer to the city and they think, well, if I look at the ten year average, it says that this has had a ten year average of let's say seven percent growth, and they go, hey, uh, this is a this is a stayer, right? Look. 10-year average of 7%. And that 10-year average may be correct and it may even continue on that trend. But what's probably going to happen is it's going to be a bit of a lumpy journey. So you really got to kind of think about like where where does this fit into your portfolio and why? Because if you're thinking I'm going to buy for the growth and because I want to use it in some way, but then you're in a lumpy market and you've got prices that are going up and down and all of that kind of stuff, you that may not actually work for you either. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, because if you've got an asset that you're expecting you're going to get 7% every year and then one year you actually get 1%. Exactly. Then maybe the next year you get 3% and then maybe the following years it goes up to like 10 But in that point in time when you needed the 7%, when you were banking on that 7% and you only get 1%, mm. that's kind of when people hit roadblocks. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, absolutely. And so I think one of the key things here, and we kind of touched on it earlier, is to look at the sales volume. So if Mm -hmm. I look at, say, uh, Sunbury, now I'd have to double-check these stats through the COVID period because I don't think these numbers will still stack up through that period. But more broadly, if we look at it um, prior to that, you know, Sunbury sells around 180 to 190 houses 
every quarter. That's not a big, that's not a big variance. 180 to 190 houses every quarter, and its capital growth rate's about 7%. If you look at um, freshwater in the Northern Beaches, it sells between 45 and 55 houses every quarter, and it's got a growth rate of 8.1%. And so what we can see there is something really, really interesting. You know, one of one of those one of those markets has got has got a higher volume, higher volume per quarter, 180 to 190 houses per quarter, and a growth rate of around seven percent. And then you've got one is with lower volume, 45 to 55 houses every quarter, and that's got an average growth rate of 8.1 percent. So this the consistency is what we're looking for, but that's not necessarily going to define the growth, right? So if it was like consistency and numbers equaled more growth, you would look for the most consistent but also highest rate matrix. You would create a little matri- matrices around that. And you would go, okay, how can I find that? Maybe I can get 9% consistently year on year. But there are other characteristics as well, which is why this series is so important. You need to understand what are the other core drivers? You know, is there, so for example, freshwater has better lifestyle drivers than Sunbury, but Sunbury has better urban renewal projects than, than freshwater. And so there's kind of all these different characteristics that have got to layer into it, which is why this series is so important and so valuable, right? Because once you can start to understand all of these different character characteristics together and look at what the interrelationship is between those things that's when you can start to really pick apart the the unique way to use this information cool yeah super cool <laughs> so gabby do you think you would ever buy a stayer maybe down the line not right now when do you think you would add it into into your portfolio or our portfolio i feel like it's a bit more of a of a i don't want to say legacy asset because i don't mean it in 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 the way that we use legacy asset, but it would be more of a, like it's a stayer, almost like a long-term hold, probably for long-term wealth creation for mm. like a later generation. It's something that you can kind of, once you've got sufficient cash flow in the rest of your portfolio to be able to hold that and it not be a liability for you, yep. you can kind of afford to hold it and just let it churn collecting that 8% year on year until a point when, you can liquidate it or whatever you need to do with it. But yeah, I think maybe 10 years, maybe. Yeah, totally. I think it's you touched on a really interesting thing there. And let's get into that because let's use a case study. So an example of a time that would be amazing to do this is we actually had a client um, who, you know, had had come from a you know fairly wealthy background, you know, very his very interesting story of um that you know, his, his family had been in business for decade, uh, for generations, and he'd kind of been passed on the family wealth. And so, what he was doing with that wealth was setting his kids up with by establishing trusts. Every single one of the kids had a trust, and he was going and buying real estate assets in cash, right? So no leverage, no debt. And so this is exactly what he was looking for. He was looking for those stayers. He was looking for the assets that he could buy and nothing was going to, ha- he was just going to buy it. And then when the kids grew up, they would have this big wealth base, right? And this was the goal. So, and I think it's actually a really interesting thing there in legacy. And look, the way we talk about legacy assets is typically like total income replacement and all of that kind of stuff. But there are many other aspects to that phase, I think. You know, I think when you're building that legacy and if you can buy those kind of assets, they function really well. But what they probably don't serve you very well in is your day to day unless you're living there. So I think it's um I think it's such a really interesting point. Mm. Awesome. Great. Is there anything else you want to add to this um unique little addition to our hunting hot hotspot series, Gabby? Because I think it's I think it's quite different, this one. I think it's quite different compared to a lot of the other stuff that we've talked about. And it, it kind mm. of 
it's kind of very different to our typical normal strategy around cash flow, growth, and the ability to add value. Like I don't see this being very good cash flow markets. I think it's I think it's a really important piece to add into all of this conversation because as you said, like so many of the strategies that we talk about or even that you hear about online or people people get attracted to the sexy tactics of like, you know, the hot spot, like how do I find the information and the data and the indicators of where to look and where to buy next and where's going to boom next and all of that. But there is this whole other side where there are markets that just consistently grow. So if you, you know, that could be part of a strategy, considering all everything else we've talked about in this episode and considering all the other drivers in this series, but it can be something else to consider with your portfolio as well. It doesn't always have to be this kind of short-term tactical thinking. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just think yeah. it's important. But I, I, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think that I think that um, there was uh, there was there was a, a Japanese swordsman. You know, you know this story quite well, Gabby. Gabby uh, Miyamoto Masashi, who actually wrote the Book of the Five Rings. Uh, he was very famous. He was the he's the world's greatest samurai, right? He was. He was in 60, 64 battles to the death and won every single one. He's like, he's the greatest sword Japanese swordsman who ever lived. And he's, you know, there's this whole like amazing story around around him. Now he's he always carried two swords. He always carried two swords with him. One was a short sword and one was a long sword. And so that when he had when he was battle, when he was fighting people outside, he would draw out the long sword and he would battle with that. And when he was inside, he'd draw out the short sword. So he always, but he always had two swords. And this was a really interesting characteristic of around Miyamoto. Masashi. Now, he died of old age. He never died in battle and he became, you know, this really great wise leader in the whole samurai community. But the point of the matter is he always fought with both swords at hand. So he always thought, what are the short term and what are the long term implications? Where, how do I need to prepare for different environments and different situations? And this is the same thing that we're kind of talking about here. We, you and I talk about this kind of stuff in business a lot. We we'll often talk about short sword and long sword strategies. Like, okay, what's the thing that we need to do now to give us the result now that we want? Short sword. And also, what are we going to do to give us what we need later? And that's long sword. And this is the same kind of thing that we can apply when thinking about this and where it fits into the property portfolio. Because sometimes you're going to need to do things which are going to be short. Okay. How do I increase capital in the fastest possible way? How do I reset my cash flow so I can borrow again and all of that kind of stuff? And that's when you get down to things like, okay, should I do JVs or maybe I should do a renovate for profit or maybe I should do one of these kind of things. And you've got long, long sword strategies, which are do nothing. Buy, do nothing. Do the minimum amount and and just leave it alone, you know. And and that's kind of value investing in in that in that truer sense. So I think that I think this is really critical for people to be thinking about because the reality is, if all you think about is short term tactics, you're you're constantly you're going to be signing yourself up to uh, be in a trap of constantly having to be working because the reality is. If you're trying, let's just say you're doing flips. Let's say the goal is you're going to do a a development flip every year. So you're going to buy something, subdivide, build, and sell, right? And you're going to do that every year until when? Because if you're just doing, if the goal is do that for the next 20 years, you've created yourself a pretty hefty job. But the reality is, if you're doing, you know, a development flip, you buy, subdivide, build, sell the whole lot, and then you're converting that into other assets. And some of those are short-term, so you can continue to keep your capital coming in in the short-term, and some of them are long-term. I think that could be a really wise way to be thinking about your portfolio. Mm, it's, it's, it's pretty much active versus passive 
when you think about just doing that short sort of the time, you're right. It just you, you will get stuck in the trap of just constantly doing that because you're not actually thinking further ahead than what's immediately in front of you. Yeah. Just like, how do I solve my pro- current problem right now? And then when that's solved, you're like, okay, I've got this other problem now. <laughs> how do I solve that? And then that's your own treadmill. You might think that you're, you know, building wealth and and making ground as a property investor when really you've just kind of made your own treadmill. Mm. And so it, it's very appealing, though. It is very appealing. I would say it's very appealing to to. I'm gonna I'm gonna sound ageist, but I would say it's slightly older generation, like people who are like you know maybe in their 40s, 50s, you know, 60s, uh, when they think about property investing, they think well, this is the only way to go because it's, it's stable. So if you met someone, let's just say let's just say it was someone's parents, right? Uh, and they, I mean, use my parents as an example. If my, parents, if my parents had decided that they wanted to invest and they thought, you know what, we don't, we don't want to take many risks, what we want to do is we want to set ourselves up for retirement, and they had a bias towards this kind of thing where they're just like, all right, I just want consistency. Do you think that this would be the right thing for them to do? And what advice would you give them? I guess it depends on their specific goals. It depends on their specific, you know, monetary targets and the timelines and what assets they currently have and their attitudes towards doing anything beyond buy and hold. You know, it depends on the the value of income that they're trying to replace what they need to go through retirement. So. Mm. Fair enough. No, no, fair enough. I, I think it's. I think it's just fascinating because I, because I, I get. I've spoken to quite a lot of people in that kind of uh, age bracket who have never invested and want to invest and have a desire to, you know, set themselves up for retirement and have a bias towards these kind of uh, towards these kind of strategies. They're like, uh, it's too it's too scary to think about uh, doing something which you know, maybe a little more active in the kind of short term. And they think that they, they, they think that, you know, naturally active means higher risk, um, which naturally, mm-hmm. you know, the more moving parts there are, there is an a slightly uh, elevated element of risk, of course, but they have a bias towards these kind of locations. And what I've actually consistently seen happen is they'll, they'll lean that way and they'll buy those assets and actually probably still never get to where they want to go, which I think is a really fascinating uh, dichotomy that a lot of people find themselves in. So, Yeah, I think, I think with shorter term strategies at that phase of life i suppose it's there's an education piece of that you can work with other people to help you do that you don't have to go and do that because it can be very stressful for anyone who's never done it before let alone if it's a completely new concept for you and you're kind of at that stage of life where you're just like i just want to chill out and i just want something to set me up for retirement and i don't really want to think about it. it it can be quite intimidating to think about doing that kind of active strategy. Um, so I think a lot of it is just education of there are people that you can work with that can do it for you and you get all the benefit, you get the outcome, but it can still have that the benefit of an active strategy and they don't have to do it. So. Yeah, 100%, 100%. But anyway, if you are if you are interested in this kind of a strategy, and again, look, this will fit somewhere in your portfolio. Like there's nothing wrong with that. We, we always talk about getting cash flow growth and the ability to add value, but sometimes... Sometimes the most important thing to add to your diet is something a little different. You know, just like eating a piece of chocolate every now and then can actually be good for you. So I can adding something, adding a stayer into your portfolio. So it's definitely something to consider in any property portfolio. And I think that if you want to try and identify these kind of areas, you need to look at what the consistency is and not just look at a a five-year or 10-year average, but look at the sales volume and then also then look at the averages. And if those two things correlate, you've probably found a location which is most likely to produce 
consistent and reliable capital growth year on year and quarter on quarter. And if you have enjoyed this, if you've enjoyed this, then make sure you download the Hunting Hotspots guide on the Investor Lab website. Just head to theinvestorlab.com.au. Grab that there. You can download it. It's free. You can actually, actually we're up to number six now, right, Gabby? So you can actually access all 10 of the of the hotspots. <laughs> now, you don't even need to wait for us to talk about them and to, and to gas bag all about them. If you want to get that early, jump in there and grab it because it's an amazing resource um, that you can use now to start getting ahead in property. And of course, if you want to understand a little bit more how to do what we do and how to you know, understand the strategies around what we do, then you can also get a copy of my book, Limitless, The Renegade's Guide to Building Wealth Through Property. Get that from theinvestorlab.com.au as well. And lastly, if you've enjoyed this, just make sure you hit subscribe on Apple iTunes or, or, or even head to YouTube. Because we are going deep on YouTube. So check us out there and make sure you subscribe there too. So any last words, Gabby, before we wrap it up? Nope. Great. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks, guys. It's been awesome. I hope you've enjoyed this as ever with the other episodes of the Hunting Hotspot series. Make sure you give us some feedback. Let us know what you think and let us know whether this was valuable to you, if you want more stuff like this or not, and share it with a friend. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye now.